I guess this is a first for us at Ag Watchers to do our first live podcast. A, a bit of an experiment for uh, for us that uh, Stefano from Fast Markets has introduced us to. Uh, so, introduce uh, Dave McKean from from Grain Growers, CEO of Grain Growers Australia, uh, the largest representative body of farmers in Australia. Dave, good day, and great and to be with you, Andrew and Matt and uh, Tim. Tim, editor of Fast Markets. Probably everybody in the audience in Geneva knows you, but for the people on our side, uh, we, we thought today was a good idea to talk about talk about Australian grain, talk about what's happening over the next year and what's happened recently. Uh, Matt and I, we run a podcast called Ag Watchers for people in, in the audience here who don't know who we are. A very casual affair. I guess you could call it, instead of fireside chats about agriculture, it is uh, side pub pub backroom stroke beachside chats, hence why we're just trying to get the last couple of rays of evening sunshine in Australia uh, before before nighttime. So we thought we'd be a bit more organized. So we've got the list of uh, agenda items. Uh, so we'll start to read that out and we'll, we'll go from there. So agenda item number one, uh, half a dozen eggs. Uh, Jen, oh, I've got the wrong list. I see what you've done to, there, yeah. Well, we're just going to have to do it as normal with no agenda. One, one of the things that we like to, to do, obviously, is our uh, psychological test of our audience, of our, of our uh, podcast uh, guests. So do you want to explain it and we'll go from there? Yeah, it's a quick word association, guys. So we'll run with, uh, I think we might use Dave as the guinea pig and then switch to Tim. We're just going to throw a couple of words at, or a word at you. And then you just give us back the first kind of word or phrase that comes to mind when you um, when you hear the word. Eddie, let's go. Barley tariff. Massive disruption. GM crops. Huge opportunity. Black pudding. It's going to be part of a full English, doesn't it? Or Scottish. Well, Scottish. Haggis. That's definitely not part of a full English. I, I did hear once that there's a, a small bird somewhere in the northern part of the UK, uh, one leg longer than the other to go around the hills. Um, I think that's got something to do with it. Sorry, that was longer than the word. Wet, wet weather. Uh, wet harvest. Is, is current. Current now, live. Wow. Top 26. A lot of hot air. Very good. Very good. There you go. So we'll roll with with Tim now, shall we, Andrew? This is the bit I've been losing most sleep over, to be brutally honest. (laughs) Right, you go first, Matt. Um, How about Boris Johnson? (laughs) She's <laughs> just going to get me into trouble uh, uh, Prime Minister Brexit Disaster Oh no, I've gone political <laughs> Black pudding French barley <laughs> uh, Black pudding, full English And what was the other one? French barley French barley, China Right. Well, I think that gets us enough to do a psychological <laughs> test, and we can we can send through the results. Uh, Tim, we'll be sending you a P forty five in the post <laughs> for, those, uh, for those for those political answers. I should not have hedged. Yeah. 
So, so let's get into the nitty gritty of it. We've we've sort of covered off a couple of those those key sort of things, but let's get a bit more detail. The uh, the Bali tariff. Dave, give us give us a bit of a rundown for for a lot of the people in the audience. You know, they're all Europeans. They don't care about Australia. They don't even know Australia exists. So <laughs> tell us what happened with the the Bali tariff. How did yeah, it? Yeah, thanks. About? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. And I think it's uh, important to note. Uh, when we talk about some global international cha- changes and challenges and, and when we look at our international rulebook, it actually doesn't uh, sometimes you know, matter if, if, if it's you know, a country right down the, the southern end of the globe uh, that's been impacted by it because the overall rule settings set by the WTO will impact every nation globally uh, as we go forward. Uh, so I guess if we do a very quick snapshot of, of where we're at now and how we got here, uh, back in 2018, if, if we look back in uh, late 2018, um, an investigation was launched by the Chinese government uh, into into the Australian barley industry. And that was on two fronts. Uh, Firstly, one front was an allegation that Australian barley had been dumped in China or effectively sold below the cost of production. And secondly, that Australian barley had been subsidised unnecessarily. Uh, So that process and investigation took some time as the Australian uh, grains industry representing the barley farmers across Australia. We did a lot of work pulling together evidence, information to support uh, the the market transparency in Australian uh, production systems, the, the transparency in the way we operate globally as a global competitor in in a global grain uh, environment uh, to, I guess, to ensure that there was a clear evidence base to to defend our position as the Australian barley industry. We didn't find any, through all that investigation, any evidence of any dumping uh, or any subsidies you know, paid unnecessarily or outside WTO rules to Australian farmers. Uh, that investigation took, took some time, uh, but finally the, the Chinese government after some time, and if we then fast forward around to, uh, I think it was around May 2020, uh, the Chinese government finally made a decision and their decision was that uh, that they deemed that they're from their perspective, that there may have been a dumping and countervailing in place. So they put an 80% tariff on Australian barley, effectively locking out Australian barley from the from the Chinese barley market. It was a market that had been in place for many years, uh, built up on strong relationships, a mutually beneficial relationship where Australian farmers had, were breeding crops specifically suited to the Chinese barley market. Uh, you know, after continuing to step through some processes and trying to work through the the difference of views in a bilateral way, that that's really challenging in a in a diplomatic environment where you can't meet face to face. There are also some ongoing challenges between the relationship between the Australian and Chinese government. Uh, you know, we step through all the all the relevant processes you do at that point in time once the tariffs are put in place. So that included going through things like the Chinese administrative appeal process, uh, ensuring that we provide a clear evidence and information into that process. Uh, We were unsuccessful in those processes and that's when we asked the umpire to step in uh, and that's where the World Trade Organisation comes in. So uh, Australian... Australia, or the Australian government on behalf of the Australian industry and, and the Australian people, uh, made the request to the WTO to, to set up a, a panel to oversee the dispute, uh, to actually have a have a look, uh, get the two parties together. So uh, my, my chairman, who's a farmer uh, back in Australia in the Victorian Mallee, he describes the WTO process as uh, couples counselling for countries. Uh, it's when two countries can't see eye to eye, uh, the WTO gets them together with a common set of rules and 
puts them in a room to have a discussion around their various perspectives, uh, and, and then we'll set through uh, a range of steps to uh, to get all the information on the table, but look at them through a lens of of consistent decision making by international trade rules. Uh, the, the the dispute panel has now been established and they're getting on with their work. So currently, as we speak, uh, there's a WTO dispute panel uh, in place, um, currently uh, meeting over the coming mo- weeks and months, uh, albeit virtually, not in Geneva as they often would, but at virtual meetings, uh, looking at evidence from the Australian barley industry and information from the from the Chinese government as well uh, to make decisions around what what's actually been occurring and what's consistent with Australia, with global trade rules so, so David, at the to... time at the time this was occurring like this this was in process this whole barley dispute much much earlier in the piece as you've outlined but um, at the time when it actually then was announced the tariff was announced it was right in the thick of a situation where we did have other trade disputes with China in beef and in wine, for argument's sake, and in some seafood products as well. How, how much of that kind of outcome was maybe more of the political side you know, at the time, or, or was it something that was going to happen irrespective, in, in your view? Yeah, oh, I think it's important to look at the facts and not speculate too broadly when, when we think about the broader trade discussion. Uh, that's, certainly that's, not, we, that's our job, Matt. Just <laughs> speculators, market commentators. Um, but it is important to think about some of the other Australian industries, so the Australian wine industry, uh, who had a very strong export market into China as well. They've also now stepped through the case of taking uh, taking their dispute to the WTO, as they believed it was against WTO rules, uh, and they believe that the tariffs put on the Australian wine industry is inconsistent with, with global trade rules. So, uh, so for some Australian industries, uh, it, it was a little bit clear-cut outside of WTO. For other Australian industries, it was, it was less clear-cut. Uh, around uh, the way they needed to engage and the relationship between uh, what was happening between the Australian government and Chinese government at the time. What, so by going back to the very, very start of it, the, this really started back in, say, 2016, 2017. That was, that was our previous record crop prior to 2020 and, and the current crop, which is, which is just coming, which we'll, we'll talk a bit about later on. Uh, but going back to then, that was a time where we had a massive barley crop. You know, it was it was record crop, 12 million tons off the top of my head. And barley prices were low. And, and we were shipping big volumes into China because China was more than willing to, to buy it. But I wouldn't call it necessarily dumping when it's private trading companies selling to other private trading companies, um, albeit some of them Chinese government owned. But... Uh, but it is hard to, to, to argue that we, we, we were dumping, especially it must be galling for, for you as a grain growers representative, representing grain farmers who they'd be more than happy to have accepted, you know, an extra couple of hundred dollars a ton on top of the, the price. Oh, we're, we're... Absolutely, Andrew. Australian farmers, uh, like all farmers across the, the world, uh, try to do the best they can to innovate, to, ke- to keep ahead of the curve, uh, to deal with you know, production fluctuations, especially in Australia, a lot of volatility in our production systems, uh, but also deal with those market fl- fluctuations and, and ultimately to try and get the best price possible. Uh, so it is to some extent counterintuitive and we haven't seen any, any evidence or information to that would indicate that there was any dumping that did 
take place, but it, it's it's really counterintuitive for Australian farmer to sit there and think um, that, that they have dumped uh, their grain. It's also counterintuitive if we look at the subsidies. You know, the OECD takes a look at uh, looks look at subsidies um, each year uh, provided to farmers, and we know that that uh, for many countries that subsidies is a large proportion of farmers' income. In Australia, it's negligible. So in Australia, from an OECD average, we know we're the lowest and generally pegged about the same as New Zealand uh, with the amount of government support um, that we have coming coming to farmers. And it's also really important to note that uh, that, that support by, provided by the Australian government isn't trade distorting subsidies. So we're not talking about minimum price supports. We're not talking about direct price support subsidies. What we're talking about is is co-investment, for example, between the government and, and, uh, and the industry for, for research and ensuring that uh, we, we can you know, build the best production systems possible. So, David, so, um, it's been, a, it's been a, a bit of a problem for the Australian barley farmer, of course, but it hasn't been an absolute disaster in the sense that we have found alternative markets for, for that product, and and been you know from from the global perspective, we're you know we're achieving reasonably good prices. Um, you know, still considering um, the fact that we've lost such a big customer. Yeah, look, it's it's sort of been one of those. I guess we need to look at all challenges as, as an opportunity. Um, I'm a bit of an internal optimist, so I like to look at challenges as an opportunity and where can they take us next. And it's been one of those, uh, I guess, situations where, look, look, initially a lot of Australia's barley did go into the Saudi Arabia feed market, uh, but we've also really opened up our eyes to some new market opportunities. Uh, so with the with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the plurilateral agreement finalised in the last couple of years, that actually reduced tariffs for Australian barley into the Mexican market. So for the first time last year, we actually saw Australian barley go into Mexico, um, partly because of those reduced tariffs, but also because of that demand opportunity and the quality of Australian barley could meet that demand. Uh, but there's also now um, great opportunities for us in a range of other South American nations, uh, also some African nations, looking at premium malt barley markets. So some of those things we mightn't have uh, looked at quite so carefully or pursued so strongly four or five years ago, uh, but it's brought on those opportunities, Look, albeit they're not at the same volume as China, but they are great opportunities for Australian farmers. So you mentioned that you're internally an optimist, uh, but I'm Scottish, so I'm naturally uh, pessimistic, I guess. I guess it's all that cold weather. Realistic, I think, is, a, is Realistic. correct. Yeah, and correct uh, I, I was going to say that, I was going to make a point, I guess, is that Whilst whilst we've still been able to have a pretty good flat price in terms of, of our barley pricing in Australia, uh, we're still heavily discounted against the rest of the world. I was going to bring Tim in here because we haven't actually spoke to Tim yet. And uh, we won't mention any cricket scores or anything. Oh. Uh, uh, but I, I won't mention the rugby then. Well, I won't mention well, that. No, 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 nobody in Australia has mentioned it to me for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and with a good reason, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Tim, one of, one of the things that you look at is, is the European markets and, and what's happening there. And uh, tell, us, tell us who is winning China? Because obviously China no. is still buying massive quantities. And, and you gave it away in your psychological test at the start of the session. Awesome. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think this is one of the interesting things. And for you guys, Dave, um, we've seen this. There was a pattern that's come through over the last four or five years, really. Um, and I don't know if you want to initiate it with, with Donald Trump, but this whole 
disruption to established trading patterns and the, the capacity and the willingness of trade partners to suddenly start throwing their weight around, which exposes people to all sorts of disruptions, dislocations, and, and, and suddenly exposes people to the need to, to look for new markets or to, to, to forge new relationships or actually does actively provoke, provoke the imposition of some of the support that, that some of these things are nominally based, based upon in order to protect farmers who, through no fault of their own, are suddenly caught in this, this, this huge um, trade winds that, um, that, that they're not typically exposed to. So um, we see this in, in a number of people, you know, and China is, is one of the world's biggest importers of just about every commodity there is. Um, so they are, I guess, hugely exposed to flat price moves. I don't know how much of, of this behaviour is rooted to um, the, the price movements, the fact that you have got you know, soybeans, 100 million tonnes of soybeans that you need to import every year. And every time you come out and say, I'm going to buy some soybeans, the price jumps up by 5%, 10%, whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure they have a, an acute awareness of that. There's also obviously some geopolitical sabre-rattling. There's all sorts of other um, factors that are f- uh, feeding into this. But yes, them, some of the big winners of this, um, we've got it into a situation where at the same time, Australia was falling foul of China. Canada was falling foul of China as well. Um, over Huawei, which I thought was an island in the Pacific, but it turns out it's actually a telecoms giant. Um, we're wearing, so, we're wearing Huawei. I was say, you're in your Huawei. Team. <laughs> Is this sponsored? Um, so the 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 uh, one of the big winners has been France, which has has suddenly stepped up to uh, uh, to deliver quite large volumes of barley that we've been reporting on as they uh, they move they make that move. But I think it's it, it feels like it's still a double edged sword, and that that what gives with one hand can be taken away with another. Um, uh, very suddenly, but um, it, it's not just in, in in the barley area, but in the wheat area as well. We're also a lot of our the guys that we're talking to are keeping a very close eye on Russia. Um, it's imposition of export tariffs. Um, the the way that governments are trying to now deal with runaway prices domestically, the impact that that has at home, even in uh, governments that are perhaps less democratically minded. Um, as soon as a population starts, I mean, I'm coming in from the United Kingdom where a month ago, none of our filling stations had fuel. So people were mighty upset and were writing to their MPs. It's a disgrace. Um, when you run out of products like that, oil, um, it's a major inconvenience. People get very upset. But when people start having to pay a lot more money for staples like bread uh, and some of the basic foodstuffs, um, your population generally doesn't ever forgive you for that. So um, a lot of these measures that we've seen coming in, Russia, as as I said, has just imposed um, a raft of export duties that are suddenly making life a lot more complicated for traders, for exporters in general. Um, People are not really taking the sort of long-term positions they used to take when they're trying to sort out their supply lines. They're much more focused on the the spot market, which kind of accentuates that problem because they, they are more prone to either pushing prices up because of sudden big demand or um, that they're, they're not able to plan ahead and, and capitalise on lower freight prices or lower uh, commodity prices at a later date. So it, there's a real mixture of, of, of factors that are coming together here that are really um, driving advantages for some. And as I said at the moment, the French are amongst those who are perhaps capitalising on that, enjoying a bit of a windfall, but um, uh, far be it from me as an Englishman to suggest the French were uh, always prone to that sort of uh, opportunistic... Uh, I, I have no idea who's in the audience. I probably should be very careful before I go back into the main hall. Uh, but from, that, maybe... from, that pers- from that perspective, Tim, um, the, Australian, uh, the Australian side of the equation has provided the French with a, 
a fantastically huge customer for their barley in China. And then, on the other hand, we've taken away a submarine deal, so they balance out. <laughs> they balance out. The suppose, <laughs> yes, we are. Yes. Not sure if they're not sure what if are they complaining about. Yeah. There you go. But 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 going back to to the French and 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 the Australian, it's it, is is it? A, you know, you mentioned the thing about changing trade flows, which. Mm. You're right. The last couple of years, we've just seen those trade flows changing. You know, Brazilian soybeans into China versus U.S. soybeans. You know, we, we are, our our ships are passing in the night. French ships going to uh, China, whilst we go to Saudi Arabia, and 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 same from Ukraine to China as well. So I guess it's it's an interesting one. And geopolitics politics are always the one that you can never sort of really get a good handle on because you never really know what is what is going to happen so but but dave going back to it yeah we've we're one year down uh, five years provided nothing changes you know and provided the wt doesn't change the mind well out of uh what is the perception from growers do they think well we don't need to worry about it yeah, I guess, Andrew, when the tariffs were first put in place, uh, we did immediately see the price impact, um, which, which you know as well as any, you did a lot of uh, of the market um, you know, analytics around that time. Um, and we I'm saw- trying, I'm, we, trying to, I'm trying to play dumb here, dude. <laughs> which, which, which isn't that hard. <laughs> um, no, no need to play. Um, so uh, look, look. So we do know we had that forty to fifty dollar a ton impact uh, around that time, and that happened right at the farm gate. So we did see that impact. But to some extent, uh, the the possible or potential impact of these tariffs have been offset by some very large production years in Australia, and Australia's uh, both barley and wheat being priced very well globally. So for, for Australian farmers right back at that farm gate level when they're sitting on their header this year driving around, uh, look, the barley tariffs with China probably aren't the first thing on their mind. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're certainly looking at the weather at, right at the moment, right across Australia, a lot of, lot of storms around and a lot of we'll, those we'll, impacts we'll, flowing on. We'll come back to that one in a bit. I think that's, yeah. that's probably the top point that most people are interested in. Uh, yeah. but, 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 but going back to that price, so there is that element of, they don't know what they've lost to an extent. And, uh, okay, you're getting a good price. Like F, uh, F1 barley in Melbourne today was close to $300 a tonne. Historically, a good price. But then if you look at it, well, how heavily discounted are we to, uh, to, to wheat in Australia? How heavily discounted are we to, uh, you know, French barley? We're, we're heavily discounted. And that's where and, and- growers gro- gro- might not realise that, well, they should have been not $300 a tonne, maybe $340 a tonne. Yeah, I, I guess I guess Andrew, f- from your perspective, you'd still put a forty to fifty dollar per ton discount um, on, on Australian barley at this point in time due to that impact. Thirty-five to forty, yeah, just just based based on you know as that reversion to mean, the reversion to average, in that we should be we should be discounted to wheat, uh, barley as as we always are, but we shouldn't be as heavily discounted. You know, where where if we look past the last twenty years of pricing, you've got a spread. That spread's wider than it normally is. So, and that spread changed May 2020. And the only other thing that happened that month was, uh, well, China. So, correlation doesn't equal causation, but I'd, I'd, I'd put money on it that we're uh, Australian farmers aren't making quite as much as they could have done if China was still there. Yeah. And, 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 Andrew- and, conver- and conversely, the Chinese consumers pay more. 
So it's a lose-lose yeah. situation. Absolutely, absolutely. That, that, that's what that's what a lot of in these uh, international trade disruptions. If we have uh, our global competitors putting tariffs on other countries or even export tariffs in their own produce, uh, we do find time and time again that, that ultimately it, it's impacting their their domestic producers and their domestic consumers heavily. Um, but but just going back to your point of, of that thirty five to or if we say forty dollars a ton, um, and we, if we have an Australian grain farmer on average might grow around two thousand tons of barley, that's eighty thousand dollars out of pocket. Um, you know, off the bottom line where, where they could be building their reserves ready for the next drought, investing back in their farm business. And that's a fairly significant amount, I feel, back for the, you know, back for the average Australian farmer. Yeah, and, and, and then when you add that 80,000, you know, we say, well, that's 2,000 tonnes. And we say, well, 22,000 farmers in Australia. You know, that's substantial quantity. I'm, I would calculate it in my head just now, but I'd make an absolute mess of that one. So, so Tim, one of the one of the things that we're hearing a lot just now, we're, we've got 15 minutes left. One of the things that we talk to a lot of people in Europe as well in the trade, and uh, we get a couple of questions about Australia every year at this time. You know, especially when it's raining just now. Yeah. Uh, is the Australian crop ruined? Yeah. And and are, are you? What, do you find? Do you feel the same questions? Uh, are Europeans starting to look at Australia? We always think Australia, it's the, it's the end of the world. It's a an ex prison colony, you know. <laughs> you know, no, nobody else really thinks about Australia. Uh, but but are I, people I mean, talk, are people talking about it just now? Yeah, and I I, I I never quite understood the uh, the prison colony thing uh, as a, as an Englishman living in a. Well, you can see you can see how I was you can see how say, bad it is here. <laughs> what, what's the what's the punishment here? <laughs> I get to stay in the uh, in a quiet small cold island, and you get to live out there in paradise. So, um, who had the last laugh there? Um, yeah, it, it, I think the thing with with Australia is that it has maybe slipped a little bit off the radar over the last few years because you've had this consistent drought conditions and suddenly you roll back in the last couple of seasons with huge harvests and everyone's like oh i've forgotten about australia and that's come at the same time that that russia which has been you know pursuing this very clear um dominant trend within the uh, export market uh, particularly for wheat um that, that that assumption was that russia would continue and growing and growing growing big if not a reliable partner, then certainly would have an interest in exporting as much wheat as it can. Um, and that would make it effectively a reliable partner. So um, suddenly have Australia roaring back with with the sort of size of harvest that, that has been posted over the last uh, last season, this season, um, has has put it back on the map. And people are looking and are concerned um, because of what it could mean. And yes, the debate is now, it is raining. There is still going to be a big crop, but how much of it is going to be the high protein wheat and how much is going to slip maybe into the uh, uh, that, that sort of feed pocket as well. And what does that then mean? So I think that's the key that most people are kind of desperate to know a bit more about is, yes, wow. we know it's going to be a big crop, so here, but what is the quality? Well, here, here, here's the perfect opportunity. I know we're on the uh, <laughs> the, gra- the graveyard shift of the... Of the uh, of the the conference while everyone's you know still been out celebrating last night it's a bit early for a lot of people but we've got dave mckean on he is ceo of uh, grain growers to represent how many growers all of them yeah oh yeah we try to do our best uh, right across australia though where we've got a little over twenty two thousand grain farmers in australia so what is what is the consensus what what is the feedback you're getting at the moment from from your boots on the ground so to speak 
Yeah, look, it, it's absolutely the, the the hot topic at the front of everyone's mind, right? Uh, right up next to some of those uh, supply chain impacts, and um, which which we've talked about in other discussions, Andrew. And I know you've looked at in depth on mm. supply chain challenges of, of farm inputs, but the, but the current uh, storms are very unseasonal for this time of year. Uh, if we think around some of those farming businesses in 2018 and 2019, um, uh, some of these farmers were producing one to one and a half ton crops per hectare off as little as 100 millimetres of rain right through the growing season. So over a three or four month growing season, that's all they're getting. Uh, if we look right across Australia at the moment, uh, the really interesting, I guess, phenomenon ha- happening here is it's happening right across from the West Coast, right through Western Australia, through to South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales, right up the Queensland coast. So it, it, these are storms happening right across the country. And, and a lot of the farms have, a lot of the grain producing regions have had anywhere from 10 mils to 100 millimetres of rainfall over the last fortnight. So that that is a significant amount of rain. Now, Starting to look at what that means, I think there's a couple of important factors to note. Uh, firstly, is we're looking at a, a really big crop to start with. So um, it's important to take that into account that while there have been a range of storms, and some of those have been hailstorms as well, quite damaging sort of physically and directly. So, so but if we look across from the whole of Australia, they've still been quite isolated incidents to a, to a certain extent. And the other important factor to note is we're coming off a really high quality base here in Australia. So we're coming off a really high quality crop. Uh, so there is still plenty of room um, for Australian farmers to finish off with a high quality, high quality crop. Um, so we're, we're yet to fully, uh, I get, Guess get a full understanding of of these total impacts, what they'll what they'll impact both from a volume and, and quality perspective. Uh, but the storms seem to be continuing, uh, you know, and predicted also for the next couple of weeks, right in the middle of grain harvest here across Australia. But it, but at the at the moment, if you remember back to two thousand and ten, remember that was dry in in Western Australia and it was flooded on the east coast. And, and to put in perspective to, to the Europeans, um, the West Coast to the East Coast is like Glasgow to Moscow. And so it's fairly, so to have it being wet across that entirety in patches is, is quite unusual because usually it's, you know, we think of Australia as being two countries, the West and the East with quite distinct climates. But, but it's nowhere near as bad yet as 2010 where all the grain in the East Coast was huge volumes, but shot and sprouted grain and low proteins, a lot of feed wheat. We're not at that stage yet, are we? No, we're not at that stage yet, Andrew. So uh, we are starting to hear, you know, the, the very isolated incidents of, of shot and sprung, um, but we're still in that very isolated incidence stage. And, and what we quite often find coming into harvest at this time of the year is is most farms, you know, for, for initial wet, wet week uh, is unusual during harvest, but most most farms can can handle that. We won't see that a lot of those quality downgrades come through. We'll see isolated storm incidents occurring, um, but it's really some of those follow-on rains over the next couple of months that will have those ongoing impacts. So if we see if we see multiple storms, if we see this, these wet conditions continuing uh, for another four, six, eight weeks, um, you know, that's something that, that as, as Australian farmers will be quite concerned about, but we're not at that stage just yet. So I was going to give you a bit of advice there, Dave. Uh, pro bono advice is that you're speaking to a group of, of traders 
from from very from some of the largest trading companies in the world. You've got Tim who edits one of the largest sort of analysis papers in in ag markets. What you should have been saying is it's an absolute disaster. You know, there's going to be we're we're going to, we're going to lose half a crop, and then what's left is going to be only suitable for feeding chickens. And, and then tomorrow we'd see you know a thirty to forty dollar rise. So yeah, we'll, 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 Vol- volume down, quality up. Yeah, so so, <laughs> so we, will, we will we we will see. It's uh, it's it's a case of you know let's hope it stops raining soon, uh, and then then we can hopefully get it harvested. Uh, which is which again is another challenge because we're reliant on backpacking labor from 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 Europe generally, uh, which means that the harvest is probably going to be slower regardless because of the fact that we have uh, no access to that labor. This is certainly something we've seen in the UK is that that yeah, particularly fruit picking, which tends to be done by Europeans coming in uh, as part of the uh, the the European membership um they just haven't come in the, the volumes of quantities that, that there's been um, some quite a lot of uh, reports of just not having people to pick fruit from the uh, from uk fields so yeah I, I guess that's another one of those angles that um i, I know that the uh, indonesian malaysian palm oil industries have suffered as well from the lack of that labor um so another uh, uh another level that we haven't touched on at all is the impact of COVID, you know, where we talked about trade and all these other things, we've talked about COP and the absurdity of sending barley from France all the way around to China um, and, and, you know, the context of trying to reduce cut on top of all of that, you've then got this, uh, this, this, this pandemic, which has caused such further disruptions to these, uh, these patterns. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask you, Tim, um, with mm. regards to that labour issue. We were seeing in the news over in Australia that the problems you had just with getting fuel around the country only a few weeks ago with the, the driver shortage. So you've got similar type labour shortages in the UK to what we're seeing in Australia. Um, but was that did the beginnings of that start with Brexit and get exacerbated by COVID or, or was it mainly a COVID event or was it mainly yeah. a Brexit event, yeah. that, you know, the, I, the lack I, of I, workers? I think it's the, the opinion is divided on that subject. I think the government will say this is a global situation and has absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. But the, the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that a lot of drivers um, across the UK have come from the European market and just aren't there. Um, they're, they're, I think there have been um, some elements that have accentuated that as well in that um, during lockdowns, a lot of government units that were involved in licensing drivers shut down as well so i think it, it's come to light that there were some of the papers have reported like forty thousand drivers who are waiting to get their licenses and, and they just haven't been processed because uh it's been a lot so it's a it's a big combination i don't think you can separate them but certainly brexit sorry go going, on. Back, to, going back to it tim yeah i was in the uk as as you might have tell, I'm not got a, a traditional Australian accent. But when I when I was working in the UK, which was 12 years ago now, a long time ago, uh, there was problems with drivers back then as well. well you know, they, yeah. it was it was it was identified back then that there was a driver shortage that would be coming. Because I remember the the haulage strikes of 2007, 2008, and there was problems getting drivers back then. Because I spoke to a lot of haulage companies, and they were struggling to get staff, which. I think maybe maybe they solved that in part by getting you know Europeans to 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 take those roles. But if they've gone home, then that's that's 
basically return back to year dot. Yeah, and I think that's the, the that's the kind of the final cherry on the top of the whole combination is there just doesn't seem to have been that planning slash awareness of how strategically significant this it is. You know, you see this in Brazil with the strikes of a couple of years ago uh, that literally brought the country to its knees. Um, everybody is, and, and perhaps even more so under a pandemic environment when we are doing a lot more shopping from home, Everybody is absolutely dependent upon that truck freight moving things along uh, and keeping things being delivered. It is just such a fundamental sinew in global logistics change that, that it's overlooked because it does tend to work flawlessly. And you don't, you don't notice particularly that the flawlessness comes from a, a sector that is actually quite stretched and, and has very little contingency for, for disruptions or problems. And as we move into an environment where we perhaps, I mean, I think the, the buzzword and one of the buzzwords around Brexit was the UK supply chain is utterly dependent upon the just-in-time delivery mechanism. And you can do that because you're in an environment where free trade means that this stuff is always out there. It's fairly easy to dip into your big trading partners and, and bring in all of the stuff that you need in order to assemble cars or whatever it is that you're, you're actually doing. And the trouble is that over the last, as I said, the last four or five years, we've seen this, this utter dismantling of that process, which has left um, it much harder to be reliant upon these, these typical partners that you've been uh, used to trading with. And there doesn't seem to have been a reaction that says, well, hang on, if this is happening, then we need to build stocks. We need to build storage. And uh, we need to make sure we've got the facilities to not be, disrupted by these changes as they unfold. And that does not seem to have happened. Which again, I don't know if you've got a panel on this, but I guess that makes an interesting point. The, the inability to do just-in-time mm. you know, market and chain flows, that probably creates another onus on inventory financing. Yeah. You know, because we, we, we now don't have to sort of say, well, I'm going to get that tomorrow, so I'll pay for it tomorrow. Whereas I've got to get this tomorrow for six months' time. And and that's when it becomes a sort of the issue of, of financing inventory, which isn't the easiest thing to do either. And it's not the cheapest thing to do either. So so I guess we have been been lucky for the last 50 years. And now COVID has really sort of disrupted that whole process. And and we shall see if we if we get back to sort of some form of normality. Uh, we've not got a huge amount of time left, but Dave, I want to switch back to you. Uh, the other second question we always get all the time, uh, whenever we get uh, a big crop, is can we export it in Australia? Do we, 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 do we have the capacity to get, we've got a, a 33 million ton wheat crop coming. Do we have the capacity to get it out the doors? Mm. And and it's it's a it's a really good question, Andrew. And I think if anything, uh, you know, has taught us over the last sort of five or six years. Uh, we re- recently at Grain Growers released a report looking at some of the the various changes and challenges over the last five or six years. W- what it's shown is we have a very resilient, flexible uh, supply chain that's absolutely able to to swing and meet the needs of where that market demand is. So if we look at years like 2018-19 again, where we actually saw from the West Coast Australia to the East Coast Australia, uh, multiple millions of tonnes shifting across to meet uh, increased livestock feed demand and food demand across the East Coast of Australia during those drought years, 
uh, that's completely swung around the other way uh, into the massive crop of 2020 and now the 2021 crop to be predominantly export-focused supply chains. Uh, so I, I think that's a really fantastic story um, of how our supply chains in Australia have evolved, have adapted. Uh, we've also seen a lot of changes up country. So if we actually think around uh, those export supply supply chains, the, the ability to access sh- shipping slots, those those sort of challenges uh, you know, have been disrupted a little bit by COVID. However, we've also really seen some positive changes up, up farm. So no longer are farmers just relying on their local delivery silo, but the increased, uh, I guess, amount of on-farm storage around Australia really does mean Australian farmers are positioned really well to continue to meet those, you know, meet those market demands at the time when they require, the quality they require, and do it right throughout the whole year uh, if those opportunities arise. I don't know what, if you, what your reflections will be, Andrew. I think you are all absolutely fantastic Australian farmers. And as the Australian farmers are the best farmers in the world, uh, just like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, just like just like the Argentinian <laughs> farmers, just like the the Brazilian farmers. No, but, don't but I would say French, don't forget the French farmers. Put in a good word for them as well, because we're trying to uh, repair we, relationships there. Just don't mention submarines. Uh, but 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 the reality is, if if you actually if, if for anyone who has visited Australian supply chains, they are top notch, and they are. I think obviously decades of government investment through through co-ops and whatnot has probably helped that. Especially in the West Coast, when you look at their facilities, they are just phenomenal. And, and we do have that capacity to export huge volumes. So we are, we are actually running out of time. I can see the timer says 33 seconds. So coming along, Dave and Tim and... Andrew, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. It's Stefano from, uh, from the hotel in Geneva. Great podcast, guys. And uh, while you were talking about the supply chain, we have a question, an anonymous question from one of the uh, listeners or watchers asking why Australia is not investing more in port capacity. Do you guys have an opinion about that? Uh, I, I can sort of say my answer to this one, Dave, if you want. Well, well, I guess in terms of investment in, in port capacity, there is investment in port capacity at a, at a smaller scale. Uh, you know, we, we've gone from the large bulk handlers, Grain Corp, CBH, uh, Viterra. Uh, there is investment in uh, alternate supply chains, uh, smaller supply chains, more nimble supply chains, which are sort of set up to be more smaller scale. So they're not necessarily requiring um, 5,000 tons an hour uh, loading rates, but but smaller ones, you know, sh- smaller ship loaders where, where possible. But the reality is that we have an overcapacity of uh, port infrastructure in Australia. We have uh, our, our port capacity is really tailored towards, you know, November to June. And, and we get high volumes and it's, uh, but, but there has been investment. There's, there's the new port at Newcastle, there's um, new container packing sites um, and, and obviously a lot more investment at the existing sites to increase their throughput and efficiencies. So, so I don't think it's, it's not standing still, but it also doesn't really need all that much more unless we were to increase our yields by, you know, massive percentages. Because bearing in mind that the last two years are really are outliers based on the last, you know, 120 years of yields. Yeah, Andrew, I think I'd just add, there's been a lot of investment in CapEx light type uh, type 
export facilities. So we're talking mo- mobile shiploaders uh, rather than some of the some of the traditional t- type large at port storage facilities. So we have seen some of that. Uh, however, the other really important part to note in here is, as Andrew indicated, is uh, in, in many years uh, Australia doesn't require the, the shipping capacity that we require in a year like 2020 or 2021. So for a lot of years, uh, Australia's, uh, particularly our grain ports, won't be operating at full capacity. So it's that balance to ensure that we have the capacity when we need it, when we can grow a really great crop when the when the seasons are with us, but in some of those dry years uh, that, that we haven't got redundant capacity sitting there as well. So it's always that balance. Okay, thank you very much, guys. If you don't mind, I mean, the other, we have received other questions which you have already touched on, you know, regarding China, barley, and um, uh, the labor shortages. Uh, so I want to thank you for, the, for this podcast. I hope that we should be able to send you the recordings within uh, a day, maximum two. And um, yeah, I hope you guys have got time to, to follow the conference in the, in the next few days despite of the unfavorable time zone. So thank you very much. Bye. Thank Thanks, you. Steph. Thank See you, you when you got nothing okay. on. <laughs> oh, wait.